Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast. This is Apollo 13, Part 3. Apollo 13 is now 185,455 nautical miles out from Earth. Velocity showing on the display here in Mission Control, 3,118 feet per second. This is a live special report from ABC Radio News. I'm Bob Walker with Merrill Muller at the Apollo News Center in New York as we continue with our coverage of Apollo 13 and its unique and serious problems in outer space. Let's recap as rapidly as we can, and the line is open between Houston and Apollo 13, and the minute there's a voice behind me, I'll keep quiet so you can hear the, this dramatic conversation, but very calm, cool, collected conversation. Okay, Jack, how are you right now? Okay, here you five square now, Jim. I'm working out a space rescue for three American astronauts, Jim Lovell, Jack Swigert, Fred Hayes. They're trying to line him up or to help him get lined up so he can make some sextant navigational checks in space. And the question we have is, uh, is there some way you can uh, orient the spacecraft so that the service module is between the uh, lamb and the sun so you can recognize constellations out the window? And both ships are living on minimal electrical power supplied by the moon lander. Uh, you're unreadable, Jack. Uh, we got a signal transmitter uh, right now that keeps wavering up and down. The best I'm getting is about 2.4 AGC. They are trying to get stabilized. I stabilized. They've been pitching end over end. They've been rolling one side to the other. And uh, we read your conversation about being unable to uh, see out the window. How about out, out the AOT? They have an approximate position for them based on radar tracking from the Earth, but it is not precise enough, not accurate enough, and they need the help of the pilots in space in star triangulation, the same old Navy shipboard system, and Jim Lovell is a crackerjack at it. If you've got a situation where the limb oxygen system can provide like a 50 plus hours for two guys, uh, how do you equate that with 146 hours return if you don't have any kind of environmental control uh, uh, operation in the command module right now? They have lost all of their electrical power in the command ship except the emergency batteries which bring them home for the ocean landing. And those batteries are being saved by cutting off all the switches, the electrical switches in the command ship. Uh, we're at this time uh, water critical in the limb. He's been complaining that he cannot get the spaceship stabilized enough, nor can he see enough out the windows of the LEM at the moment. Uh, right now, I have absolutely no clue what happened. We had something rather violent happen in Bay 4, we think. That's the first admission from anyone that something violent happened to Apollo 13 tonight to cause this emergency. Well, we could have tried, Jack, that's all we got. And they're trying to get a fix in space. Okay, that's the first clear word we heard from you, Jack. DPS support means head home. Forget it. How much electrical life power at time, lifetime do we have in the LEM? And how much oxygen lifetime, how long do we have? He publicly admitted in Houston at a news conference this is the most serious situation the American manned space flight program has ever faced. They got a long way home. Calmness. That's what Gene Kranz knows it's going to take. For all the drama that's unfolding in the media, it's cool, rational problem solving and calmness that's going to get Apollo 13 home. 
And now, standing in room 210, looking over his white team, Kranz is going to make sure that calmness prevails. This team is going to solve each problem, one after another. And to Kranz, there are three pieces of kit they can use to solve these problems. The command module, the service module, and the lunar module. Now, the conically shaped command module will be their re-entry vehicle, as it was intended. But the big issue is it's turned off, and it's now going to spend days and days in the deep freeze of space, without its heaters. And then they're going to have to figure out how to turn it back on again using only its own battery power. And this has never been done before, or even tested before, and there are people in this very room who doubt it can ever be turned on again. Then there's the service module, the cylindrical craft that's still attached to the back of the command module. And Kranz knows this is dead. There was some sort of explosion on board, so he factors this out of his thinking. Which leaves the lunar module, and this is their lifeboat. But right now, it looks like a pretty inadequate lifeboat. It was designed to keep two men alive for two days. Now the white team are going to have to figure out how to stretch two days to three or four days. And they have to keep three men, not two, alive for that time. But that's all they have to work with. The lunar module is going to have to provide all the power, life support and propulsion needed to get back to the point of re-entry. Then the men can bundle back up the tunnel from the lunar module into the command module and hopefully re-enter safely. So Kranz calls three controllers to the front of the room. Aldrich, Bill Peters and Aaron, come on up front where everyone can see you. The rest of you knock it off and find a place to sit. Then Kranz speaks about some of the problems they face and he adds, the odds are damned long but we are damned good. My three leads will be Aldrich, Peters and Aaron. Make sure everyone, and I mean everyone, knows the mandate I'm giving them. Aldrich will be the master of the integrated checklist for the re-entry phase. He will build the checklist for the CSM from the time we start power-up until the crew is in the water. John Aaron will develop the checklist strategy and has the spacecraft resources. He will build and control the budgets for the electrical, water, life support and any other resources to get us home. Whatever he says goes. He has absolute veto authority over any use of our consumables. Bill Peters will focus on the lunar module lifeboat. There are probably a lot of things we have not considered and he will lead the effort on how to turn a two-man, two-day spacecraft into one that will last for four days with three men. Whatever any of these three ask of you, you will do. So there it is. Peters will make sure the lunar module lasts long enough to get them home. John Arnold will dish out power and electricity and make sure there's enough. He'll also figure out how to turn back on the command module. And Arnie Eldridge is going to write down their complex power-up sequence. This will mean keeping track of hundreds of switches that will need to be turned on or off to power up the command module. Get that muddled up and you might as well stop this rescue right now. Then Kranz tells the rest of the room that these three men will need numbers and data and answers to questions. The room will give them all they need. Hold back no capacity, no margins and no reserves. He says, whatever happens, we will not second guess you. Everything goes into the pot. My message to everyone is, rely on your judgment. 
update your data as you go along. If you are not the right person, step aside and send me someone who is. Then he says, When you leave this room, you must leave believing that this crew is coming home. I don't give a damn about the odds and I don't give a damn that we've never done anything like this before. Flight control will never lose an American in space. You've got to believe, your people have got to believe that this crew is coming home. Now let's get going. Okay, Aquarius, and uh, down here we're uh, getting regrouped, uh, trying to work on your control modes and uh, trying to set up something for PTC and uh, taking a look at consumables as opposed to flight plans and so forth. And as soon as we get all that information, uh, we'll pass it up to you. We also have uh, the 14 backup crew over the simulators uh, looking at uh, Doc Burns and also trying to uh, see what kind of alignment procedures they can come up with for uh, looking at stars out the window. So if you ever uh, are able to see any stars out there and think you could do an alignment out the window, why, let us know. Chris Kraft, the deputy director of the Manned Spacecraft Center, is on his way to a press conference. It's only been hours since the crisis began and he's going to hit off the media storm that's intent on swallowing NASA. Ever since the fire on Apollo 1, NASA had taken a tell-all, honest approach with the media. No secrets, just the truth. And the truth tonight was going to be a pretty rough story. When the crisis was in its early stages and Gene Kranz was still at the flight director's console, Kraft was at home having a shower. And while he was in the shower, he'd heard the phone ring. Now he'd ignored it because he knew his wife, Betty Ann, would answer it. She did, and then she came and told him Gene Kranz was on the line. So Kraft had found himself standing, dripping on the floor, with the phone in his hand as Kranz told him what was happening with the fuel cells in the command module. Kranz had asked him to get in quickly. Kraft had thrown on his clothes, drove as fast as he could to mission control and gotten himself up to speed as quickly as he could. And this is familiar territory for Kraft. He'd been around NASA since the beginning. The very concept of mission control had been his. He'd been a flight director and he'd done the very job Kranz was doing right now. And he'd been the one who'd brought Gene Kranz up through the ranks. But this isn't Kraft's job tonight. His first job is the press conference. He's on a panel that's explaining what they know to journalists who are clamouring for details. The press conference starts and the questions begin and Kraft and the others answer them as clinically as possible. But finally a question is asked that has no easy deflection, a question that's impossible for Kraft to wiggle out of. One of the journalists asks, Compared to other emergencies, Chris, for example, Scott Carpenter's overshoot, Gemini 8's stuck trusters, or John Glenn's retropack problem, how would you classify this situation? Now, each of these emergencies had been very serious with the risk to life. So Kraft composes himself and says, I would say that this is as serious a situation as we've ever had in a manned spaceflight. When the press conference finishes, Kraft sprints back to mission control and when he gets there, he finds it a considerably calmer place than when he'd left. At this stage, there's no real activity around the ECOM console. 
The readings on the console have flatlined because the command module has been shut down. Glenn Lunny is still on shift, along with the rest of his black team. And behind Lunny, Gene Kranz is pacing around. He's back from his meeting in room 210. And Chris Kraft knows that Gene Kranz is worried about the same thing he is. Now that everything is sort of stabilised, what is the next stage in getting Apollo 13 home? And time is running out. The ship is getting closer to the moon, all the time getting further away from the Earth. And in Chris Kraft's mind, there are two potential options available for getting the men on a track home. The first is called the direct abort. They simply turn the spacecraft around and send it directly back to the Earth. But the word simply is totally deceptive. To do a direct abort, they'll have to fire the engine on the service module, called the service propulsion system, for more than five minutes at full throttle. Now this will bring the spacecraft to a full stop and then get it moving in the opposite direction, back towards the Earth and home. Get that right and the men will be on their way home as fast as possible. So that's the direct abort. The second option is the circumlunar abort. This is the option for when the spacecraft's too close to the moon to do a direct abort. For this option, Apollo 13 will keep on going on its current trajectory towards the moon. Then they'll get caught by the moon's gravity, which will pull them around the back of the moon and slingshot them back towards the Earth. Now this is known as the free return trajectory, and it's one of NASA's ultimate insurance policies. You launch and you put a craft in orbit around the Earth. Then you fire its engine to break free of Earth's orbit and set it on a trajectory towards the moon. Now during most of this coast to the moon, there's no engines firing. And the craft will fly on this trajectory until the moon's gravity pulls the craft the rest of the way. Then flicks the craft around the back of the moon and sends it on its way back towards the Earth where it can re-enter. No intervention required. So if at any point a craft loses thrusters or power, they can still get home. This is essentially working as a gravity-assisted slingshot home, and this is the path that many Apollo missions had taken before. But Apollo 13 is one of the missions that is not flying on a free return trajectory. And the reason for this is they have to get to their landing site on the moon, the Fra Moro Highlands, and the easiest way to do this is not to follow a free return trajectory. And now, because they're not on a free return trajectory, they will, if they keep going on their current path, slingshot around the moon and be thrown back towards the Earth. But they'll miss the Earth by 40,000 miles. In other words, they won't get home. So Chris Craft knows that if the preferred path is going around the moon, then they're going to have to fire the engines and do some sort of burn to change the trajectory of the craft to bring it back on a free return trajectory. So these are the two options, the direct abort or the circumlunar abort. And Kraft knows exactly what he'd do if this was his decision. He would not do the direct abort. There's no way he'd be turning around the craft and firing the service module engine. So for a start, even if they can get enough electricity back up and running in the command module, and he doesn't think they can, he doesn't even know if he wants to fire this engine. The service module seems like it's totally crippled, and firing the engine could break something else, even crush the ship. It could collapse the back end of the spacecraft and destroy what was left. 
And once you rule out that engine, you're only left with the lunar module and its engine. Whatever you're going to do, you're going to have to do it with that. And this means the free return trajectory. So they could allow the ship to continue on its current path and let it pass by the back of the moon, which would happen tomorrow evening. Tuesday evening, it's now Monday night. And once it had gone round the moon, they could fire the engine to put the ship back on a free return trajectory. This is known as the PC plus 2 burn, and it would also speed up the craft and shorten the trip home. But to Chris Craft, it seems crazy to wait that long for a burn. What if something else went wrong? He wants to fire that engine as soon as possible and get them back on a free return trajectory now. Then they can do another burn after they've gone round the moon, the PC plus 2 burn, to build up speed. Now, Kraft is wondering how to approach Gene Kranz on this two burn idea, because this is Gene's show. One of the critical rules in mission control, and it was Kraft himself who'd written it, is that the flight director is in full control. His word is law, and that's it. As far as controlling this mission, no one else in NASA, from the director down, could tell Kranz what to do. Not even Kraft. Kraft may be Kranz's boss, but this was Kranz's decision. And as Chris Kraft is wondering how best to tell Gene Kranz what he'd like him to do, he doesn't have to say anything. Instead, Kranz says, Chris, I sure as hell don't trust that service module engine. And Kraft says, I don't either, Gene. And Kranz says, I'm not sure we could fire it even if we wanted to. Kraft nods and says, I'm not either. So Kranz says, no matter what else we do, I think we're going to have to go round the moon. Concur, says Kraft. When do you want to burn? Kranz says, well, I don't want to wait till tomorrow evening. How about we try a quick burn for a free return now, get that squared away, and then figure out if we want to speed them up with a PC plus two tomorrow? Kraft nods and says, Gene, I think that's a good idea. Two hundred thousand odd miles away, Jim Lovell, Jack Swaggart and Fred Hayes are getting used to the crowd that is three men in the lunar module, the LEM, Aquarius. The last time they checked the temperature in the command module, it was around 14 and a half degrees Celsius. And Lovell knows it's going to get a lot colder in there, so he tells Jack to go and get some more water and bring it down to the LEM before it starts to freeze. And this LEM is tiny. It has no seats because it's designed to be flown standing up. There are two small triangular windows and there's an instrument panel in front of them, covered in switches and dials. It's so small that if one of the men move, he automatically bumps the other two. And in the LEM, the temperature is starting to fall too, and the men's perspiration is starting to collect on the walls and windows, and the windows are starting to fog up. Lovell tries to look out one and says, it's not going to be easy flying this thing if we can't even see through the glass. And Hayes says that they can keep wiping these windows clean and then he asks if Lovell can see anything outside anywhere. Lovell wipes the condensation off and looks out. It's not a pretty sight. There's a swirling cloud of oxygenized crystals and particles of debris. The leftovers from the explosion that tore open the service module. 
And all this debris and gas is not dispersing because there's nothing to disperse it. It's travelling along, keeping pace with the spacecraft. And to Jim Lovell, this is a massive headache. Because with all the debris out there, they can't see the stars. Well, they can see stars, but the problem is they can see too many stars. The real stars are indistinguishable from the debris because the debris is twinkling. They can't tell the real stars from this debris. And if they can't see the stars, then they can't check their position in space because they can't do star triangulation. To level this means there's no way to cross-check their guidance system. And if they can't cross-check their guidance system, then they can't be totally sure where they are in space. Which means they can't be confident that any burns they do to change trajectory will be correct. So both the command module and the LEM have an internal guidance platform, a gimbaled system that keeps a record of which way the spacecraft is pointing. But these systems have a tendency to drift over time, and they need to be checked and reset during flights. And the way they do this is the same way that navigation has worked for centuries. They use the position of the stars. So on board the spacecraft are fixed sextants, just like the sailors, but more sophisticated, and they use these to take the positions of the stars and work out where they are. And once they've done these star checks, they can cross-check the results against the guidance system to make sure it's giving the same answer. If it is, great. If it isn't, then they can adjust it. That way, when they have to do any burns, they know their guidance system is correct and that the burn they execute will put them exactly where NASA wants to put them. But as well as this problem of correcting drift, there's another issue. Because in the rush to power down the command module and power up the limb, they transferred the guidance details from the computer on the command module to the computer in the limb. And Lovell is worried that they may have screwed up the transfer. All it would have taken was one bum keystroke or one misreading of a number. Then the guidance platform would be incorrect. Now ordinarily Lovell would just do a quick star check and convince himself the guidance platform was correct, but with all the debris, he can't. And Lovell knows that Houston is going to make them do a burn at some point soon. It's clear to him that NASA don't plan for him to do a direct abort. Instead, they're sending him round the moon. And Houston seems to be as worried about the accuracy of the guidance platform as he is, because for the past half hour, they've been asking him if he can see stars. So Lovell decides to see if he can maneuver out of the debris cloud. They clean the windows, and Lovell puts his hand on the controller that fires the four sets of thrusters on the outside of the limb. These thrusters are used for small maneuvers just like this. But when he takes the controller and pushes it forward, the whole spacecraft doesn't do what he wants. It just abruptly lurches up to the left. Whoa, says Lovell, that's a hell of a yaw. And Hayes says, that's not the way it's supposed to act. Lovell says, it's sure not the way it's ever acted before. And then they both realise what the issue is. All their simulator training has been with the LEM flying alone. But now they don't have the LEM flying alone. They have the LEM plus the dead service module and command module tied onto the back of it. This has shifted the centre of gravity of the LEM away from where it is normally. So it's changed dramatically the way the LEM responds to control movements. Lovell realises he's going to have to learn to fly all over again. And this is a hell of a time to have to do that. So as they're struggling with the ship for a while, Lausman the Capcom calls with news. He says, Aquarius, we'd like to brief you on what our burn plan is. 
were going to make a free return maneuver of 16 feet per second at 61 hours. Then we're going to power down to conserve consumables, and at 79 hours we'll make a PC plus 2 burn to kick what we've got. We want to get you on a free return course and power down as soon as possible. So how do you feel about making a 16 foot per second burn in 37 minutes? Lovell looks at Swaggart, who shrugs. He hasn't a clue whether it's possible or not on the limb. This isn't his ship. His shrugs too. Lovell says to them, It's not like we have any better ideas up here. Then his says, Do you think 37 minutes is enough? Actually, no, says Lovell. Jack, he says, speaking to the Capcom, We'll give it a try if that's all we've got. But could you give us a little more time? Lausma tells Lovell they can get a manoeuvre for any time they want. So Lovell tells them they'll shoot for one hour from now, at about 61 hours and 30 minutes, and Lausma agrees. Hayes starts preparing for the burn, and Lovell decides to see if he can keep manoeuvring the ship to see if they can get out of the debris cloud and get a star check. If they can't get this star check done and the guidance platform is wrong, this planned burn is not going to put them on a free return trajectory. So things get busy for the crew. Hayes is throwing circuit breakers and working through the descent activation checklist with a Capcom. It's the descent engine on the limb that's going to be firing. And slowly, Lovell is learning to fly his ship again. He's carefully moving it, controlling it, and he's trying to turn it inside the debris cloud. But every time he fires the thrusters, it seems to drag the debris along with him. His windows remain shrouded in haze. And Lovell isn't the only one trying to solve the problem. Back in mission control, Ken Mattingly, still without the measles, and John Young are in simulators trying to come up with some manoeuvres to help Lovell. They talk about swivelling the ship so that the service module puts the LEM in its shadow. In other words, get away from the glare of the sun and see if that helps. But this doesn't work either. Nothing is working. Absolutely nothing. And time is running out for a star check. And Lovell is a realist and he just drifts back from the controls. There's no time to check the alignment of the craft before the burn comes up. There's little point keeping trying to do it. If he's transferred the numbers from the computers correctly, they'll be fine. If they haven't, then they'll be heading in the wrong direction. And around this time, mission control seems to come to the same conclusion. Lausma comes on the comm. Okay, Aquarius, are you ready to copy the manoeuvre coordinates? And Lovell says, that's affirmative. Lausma goes on. Here we go then. The purpose is mid-course correction for free return burn. And the coordinates are noun 33061294284-00213. HA and HP are NA. Pitches and the list continues and continues. Hayes puts all this into the guidance computer and it swings the spacecraft around so it's pointing to where it thinks is the right direction for the burn. Lovell deploys the landing gear on the LEM to get it out of the way of the descent engine and they are ready. Lovell and Hayes watch the countdown timer on the LEM's panel. Hayes says over the loop to mission control, okay, one plus 30 to burn. And although the crew can't hear it, on the ground, Lausma conveys this information to Lunny, the flight controller. And Lunny makes one more circuit of the room to check everyone is go. Control, is everything alright with you? 
Okay, says Control. Lonnie continues. Guidance, okay. We're good flight. Fido, okay flight. Lonnie says, tell Moo. We're go flight. Inko, and Inko says, we're good flight. GNC, okay flight. Lonnie passes the word to Lausma, saying, all good here at one minute. In the LEM, Lovell hears Lausma say, Roger Aquarius, you're go for the burn. Lovell flips the master arm switch to on. The computer's now in charge. 22 and a half seconds later, the thrusters on the side of the LEM start firing. This is to get the spacecraft moving. The men feel a shift beneath their feet. Then the descent engine fires and Lovell moves the throttle up to 40% and he calls 40% to the ground. Lausma says, OK Aquarius, you're looking good. The vibration continues around the men. The engine burns for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. Then there's shutdown. The mission control computer says it's lasted longer than intended. 0.72 seconds longer. Lovell waits for his orders to trim the burn. They usually need to refine their trajectory by pulsing the attitude control jets. Then Lausma says, Your go, Aquarius. No trim required. And Lovell is grinning. Roger, he says. They've done it. And Lovell knows that if their guidance platform is correct, then they are on their way home. NASA just has to figure out how to keep them alive long enough to get there. And that's exactly what's taking place in room 210. But from the start, the Tiger team's numbers are looking bleak. The maths is not working out. There is no way to run this LEM in a semi-normal way. New ideas are going to have to be found. And John Aaron, who has to make the power, water and oxygen last long enough, is feeling well and truly sick too. When Gene Kranz gave him this job, he knew it was going to be incredibly difficult. But as he's actually thinking about it, he realises it's nearly impossible. But he knows once he starts thinking down this path, he'll never get things sorted out. So he changes how he's thinking. Rather than thinking it's impossible, he forces himself to start thinking in terms of what will it take to make this possible. And as Aaron is doing this, he and his offsider Jim Kelly are being bombarded with questions and ideas and demands for power. But Aaron knows there's a big difference between the power a controller feels they need and the actual power they need. So Aaron stands at a blackboard and starts to sketch out what can be turned on in the command module and when it can be turned on. And this just lights up the controllers. They start to argue that Aaron can't do things in the way he's planning. He simply can't. They need more systems on in the spacecraft and they need them on longer to get the men home. But to Aaron, there simply isn't near enough power for a normal startup. This approach is all wrong. These controllers simply can't have what they usually get. They have to make it work with what's available. Aaron puts up with these demands for 10 minutes or so, then he stops and he says, hold on, why don't you guys go get some coffee and come back here in 45 minutes and we'll have something that's more refined for you. John Aaron needs to think. Away from room 210, Chris Craft is thinking about the next burn, the all-important PC plus 2 burn. 
The spacecraft will go behind the moon, slingshot around the back, and then commence its run back to Earth. And once around the moon, they can execute a burn of the LEMS engine to speed it up. Now, this burn is called the PC plus two burn because it takes place two hours after the craft's perisynthium, the point where it's closest to the moon as it passes around it. And there are some key people working on this burn. There's the men in the trench and there's the other off-duty flight directors. Gold team director Jerry Griffin and maroon team leader Walt Windler. So at the same time as Gene Kranz is locked away in room 210 with his Tiger team, these two flight directors are working out how to do a long and complicated burn using an engine on a limb that isn't designed to do it, all with a £63,000 dead service module attached to the back of it. There is really no precedent for anything like this, although they had briefly tested it on one of the previous flights. But if they can pull off this burn, they can significantly speed up the spacecraft and get the men home faster, which would mean Room 210 wouldn't have to stretch the consumables quite so far. So that night, from 3am until 7am, Griffin and Windler try to work out options. And in the morning, they're sitting in the aisle next to the flight director station when Chris Kraft comes up behind them and asks, What have we got? And Griffin says, We've got some pretty good ideas. As far as we can see, we've got three options, any one of which should help a lot. And Kraft asks if they'll be ready to burn in 12 hours, and Griffin says they should be. Then Kraft asks if they can talk about these plans in about an hour. There'll be a number of people coming in who'll want to go over them. And these people are big. They're NASA top brass. People not usually seen in mission control. This is going to be a very serious chat. And Griffin says, this is going to happen in an hour. And Kraft says, less than an hour. And then he says he wants to talk to all the flight directors to make sure they know what they want to do before it gets discussed with the bigwigs. Griffin and Windler get Lonnie, who hands over to his assistant, and Kraft brings them to a staff support room. Now Kraft decides he doesn't want to disturb Gene Kranz in room 210. Let him keep focusing on his work. So now the men talk over the options, and by the end of the chat, Kraft seems satisfied. So now they start to go over to the viewing room, the big glass-windowed auditorium that looks out over Mission Control, where earlier Marilyn Lovell and Mary Hayes had watched their husband's broadcast. But before they get there, Griffin stops. He tells Kraft he wants Chuck Dietrich and Dave Reed in the room at the meeting. They're the Fido and Retro. So Fido is the flight dynamics officer, and it's his job to ensure that this burn is going to put Apollo 13 on a trajectory home. And Retro looks after re-entry, so he needs to be sure that all these manoeuvres are actually going to put the men back in the right place so they can re-enter safely. Now Griffin wants these men in the room with him if questions on the numbers come up. And Kraft says, go get them and get Gene too. Then they all walk into the meeting room and to Gene Kranz, this is all smokescreen. This is Chris Kraft running interference for the flight directors. Chris is buying them breathing space to think, and he's doing this by giving the NASA top brass a chance to play at being flight directors, because now everyone wants in on this crisis. And Gene Kranz just watches. 
Let them play at being flight directors. At the end of the day, it's him and his team that are going to make the decisions about which burn is going to take place. So Chris Craft opens the meeting. In about 12 hours, we're going to need to execute our PC plus two burn. Our objective will be to get the crew home as fast as possible while stretching our consumables as far as possible. The flight directors have come up with some possible burns and since it's Jerry's team that worked out so many of the numbers, I'll let him explain them. So Griffin sets out the three options. Coming in at one is what he calls, for simplicity, the super fast burn. For this burn, Lovell will burn the engine on the limb for a long time. They'll burn for more than six minutes before shutting down. This is going to put the command module landing in the Atlantic Ocean, not the Pacific Ocean where they usually come down, in just 36 hours after doing the burn. Now the upsides for this burn are really good. It will put them in the ocean on Thursday morning. And it's now Tuesday morning. And this sort of time frame seems like it will fit within the consumables for the LEM. In other words, the LEM could be kept operating with oxygen and power for this long to keep the men alive. So this is a pretty attractive option. But there are some big downsides. It will pretty much require them to use all their fuel. And it puts them in the wrong ocean. The Navy are not set up well for an Atlantic recovery. And then there's another problem. To do this super fast burn, they need to jettison the service module before the burn. They need to get rid of its mass before they fire. Now, given there's a little chance of getting it back online, this doesn't sound like a big deal to have to jettison it. But it still performs one very important function. The service module fits over the bottom of the command module, the circular part of the cone where the heat shield is. And as long as it's there, it's protecting the heat shield. And this heat shield is going to be critical to stop the command module burning up during re-entry. If they damage it, then everything will have been for nothing. Now the problem is nobody has done any experiments to see how this heat shield will perform if it's subjected to a day and a half in the deep freeze of space. And to make matters worse, if the heat shield has been damaged by the explosion, even a hairline crack, then the low temperatures could split it wide open. This, too, would be game over. So if they do this super fast burn, they're going to take a very big and unquantifiable risk. Which brings them to burn two. This is very similar to the super fast burn, says Griffin, but it will add a few more hours onto the home journey. So what's the benefit of adding a few more hours? Well, in these two hours, the Earth will have time to complete another quarter turn, which will drop Apollo 13 in the Pacific instead of the Atlantic Ocean. So at least they'd solve the recovery issue. But this burn also needs them to dump the service module before burning. So all the heat shield worries are still in play. Which brings up option three, the slow burn. In this burn, Lovell will fire the engine for just four and a half minutes. This will land them in the Pacific and it will not require them to dump the service module and expose the heat shield. But this burn, instead of plopping them in the Pacific Ocean on midday Thursday, will actually put them in the ocean on midday Friday. A whole 24 hours later, and this is a long, long time in terms of the life support the LEM can provide. 
So these are the three options. And the questions begin. What is the probability the heat shield is cracked? Well, it's probably low. But if it is cracked, the possibility of losing the crew is 100%. And the conversation swings around the room and the inevitable question of consumables comes up. How much water and power and air does the lamb have before it dies? Are there enough consumables to get the main home? And the answer is that it's too early to tell. And people think, yes, but there's the Tiger team and John Aaron working on it all. Surely they can work it out. And the debate continues for nearly an hour. And they touch on the public relations aspect of it. Could they publicly justify keeping the men in space and in harm's way for a whole extra day? True. But what if they killed the astronauts because of a broken heat shield or they dumped them in an ocean where they couldn't recover them? It would be a nightmare to get them that far and then screw up the recovery. And the arguments go on. And throughout this, Chris Kraft is silent. And slowly, the view in the room begins favouring the slow burn. And Chris Kraft and Gene Kranz and the other controllers are silently happy. Because this is the option they prefer too. And then it's simply argued out. And Chris Kraft takes back control. He speaks to the room saying, So it's agreed. At 79 hours and 27 minutes, there will be an 850 foot per second burn for four and a half minutes. Aiming for a Pacific splash at 142 hours. If all goes well, Apollo 13 will be home by Friday afternoon. Up in Apollo 13, it's been six hours since the explosion. And at this stage, the crew have been up for a long time and the flight surgeons have demanded some sleep, regardless of the crisis. The plan they've come up with is for Hayes to go to sleep now, which is around 4am, and sleep until about 10am. Then he'll get up and Lovell and Swaggart will sleep from then until 5pm that evening. That will leave them all up on duty that evening for going around the moon and the PC plus two burn. But for Fred Hayes, sleep is going to be a problem. And the biggest issue becomes obvious when he floats through the LEM tunnel and into the command module where he's expected to sleep. He's shocked with what he finds there. It's freezing cold. And this is only hours after it's been abandoned but all its heaters and electronics have been turned off and its temperature has plummeted. Now the crew's suits are designed for the men to work in a temperature of 22 degrees Celsius, but the temperature in the command module is lower than 14 degrees C. Hayes can see his breath condensing in front of him. It's going to get very cold in here. He zips himself into the sleeping bag in his couch, but these sleeping bags are designed to keep the astronauts from floating around They're not designed to keep them warm. So Hayes lies in his sleeping bag, wide awake and very cold. He's shivering and it's noisy too. He can hear the other astronauts having problems with the comm. Lovell and Swaggart are shouting into the comm because of all the static on the line. And all this noise is drifting up into the command module. And he tries to sleep. 
and he tries to sleep despite all this noise and all this cold, but it simply doesn't work. Eventually at 6am, only two hours later, a frozen, miserable and still exhausted Fred Hayes just gives up. He unzips himself from his sleeping bag and he floats back into the Lem. Lovell looks at him and says, that's it. And Hayes says, it's too cold up there, too cold and too noisy. You guys can give it a try, but I wouldn't count on you getting much rest. So Lovell turns back to what he's doing and keeps trying to resolve the calm issue. And it's frustrating the hell out of him. They're more than 200,000 miles from Earth and they're counting on mission control to get them through this. But they can't manage to talk to one another properly because of these calm issues. There's just so much static on the line. And Lovell says over the calm, Do you want us to remain in this configuration then? And Lausma says, Stay there for the next minute or two, Jim. Then we'll evaluate it. And Lovell just loses it. He says, I'll tell you what we need. We need you to try and get this squared away. See if you can't report the right procedures here. The whole works before we get all balled up. And of course, this is exactly what Mission Control and Lausma are trying to do. And deep down, Lovell knows this too. He's just venting. But he feels he's due a little venting. And when Houston comes back online, there's a new Capcom. Joe Kerwin has just relieved Jack Lausma, who's finishing an epic double shift. And so Kerwin sets to work with Lovell trying to sort out the calm problem. And as Lovell works on the calm issue, the moon is slowly growing and growing in size through the LEM windows. And the day wears on. Lovell and Swaggart try to get some sleep, but they have all the same issues as Hayes. It's too cold and Lovell's just too worried about all the stuff that still has to happen for them to survive. And their speed has been increasing as they've gotten closer to the moon. They're now travelling faster than 3,000 miles an hour and the moon is too big to be seen in its entirety through the LEMS windows. It's only 12,000 miles away now and it's getting bigger. And then they've got to go around it and do some sort of burn. And the success of that burn depends on the accuracy of their guidance platform. And Mission Control still hasn't come up with a way to check that. Down in room 210, Bill Peters is busy working on how to make the LEM survive long enough to get the crew home. Peters has been around for a while. He's worked on every flight since Gemini 3 in 1965. And he, along with the team at Grumman who designed the LEM, have made huge progress in stretching its consumables. They're going to make this LEM fly and remain functioning in a way it was never, ever designed to work. Now the first problem they resolve is the oxygen problem. And it turns out there's no oxygen problem. There's plenty of oxygen, even for three men. And the reason is that the LEM is designed to land on the moon and be opened for two moonwalks. And each time it's opened, it has to vent all its oxygen. So it has to have enough oxygen to be refilled twice. And now, because it isn't actually landing on the moon and isn't going to be opened twice, They have all this oxygen in reserve for life support. 
which brings them to water and power. The water is in short supply on the limb, and that's a big problem, because it has a number of important functions. One is providing drinking water for the crew. The other is providing cooling water for the limb's electrical systems, because running all the electrics in the limb generates a lot of heat, and water is used as a coolant. So water is in short supply. But this is also related to power. The more power you use in running the electrical systems, the more water you need for cooling. So minimising power usage also minimises the need for coolant. And they really need to minimise power. And Peters works out they can run the limb on less power than even the grooming people think is possible. Now, normally the lem needs 55 amps to run, and Peters is going to reduce this to a pretty shocking 12 amps. So 55 amps down to 12. He works all this out because the fully powered lem has 1,800 amps to work with. And once he factors in how long it will take to come home and sets some aside for emergencies, he feels he has to run at this low level. And to complicate things further, John Aaron comes looking for some of Peter's amps. Aaron is of course busy working on how to power up the command module for every entry and Aaron is dealing with the issue that some battery power on the command module was used when the service module was dying. They'd used this power to buy time when Swaggart was powering it down and Hayes and Lovell were powering up the LEM. Now Aaron needs to charge these batteries back up to ensure they can actually get through re-entry. And there's only one way to charge the batteries back up. Use power from the LEM. So Aaron corners Peters in room 210 and explains his predicament. He tells Peters he needs 34 amp hours. So now not only does Peters have to stretch the battery life of the LEM, he also has to give up some of his scarce power to John Aaron. And while Aaron is only asking for 34 amp hours, Peters knows this request is really for a lot more than 34 amps. Peters will only get 30 or 40% efficiency in the chargers and umbilicals. So in order to give Aaron 34 amps, he'll probably have to give up 100 amp hours. So Peters has a ship that is going to be stretched shockingly, and he's still being asked for 100 amps. He has been asked to give up 5.5% of his power to someone else. But Aaron says, can you do it anyway? And Peters replies very cautiously, yeah. I expect I can. So Peter's plan is to run a craft as complex as the limb on a starvation ratio of power. When the crew executed the burn to put them back on a free return trajectory, they partially powered down the limb. But this is nothing compared to what Peter's is going to do once the limb goes around the moon and completes the PC plus two burn. Then he's going to make the astronauts take an astonishing range of systems offline. He's going to turn off the computer, the guidance system, the cabin heater, so it's going to get really cold in the limb. He's going to turn off the docking radar, the landing radar, the instrument panel displays, and lots more. In fact, the only systems he's going to leave on are the communication systems and one of its antennas, so the crew can keep in touch with Houston, the cabin fan to circulate oxygen, and water glycol coolant pumps, which will keep the other two systems cool. This is mad stuff. It's like keeping only the radio and dash fan on in your car. 
Peter's plan to get the men home means they will have to survive in what is essentially a powerless cold tin can as it coasts back to Earth. And what if it gets too cold? Tough, no power for the heaters. And what if they need to change their trajectory? They'll need to turn on the computers. Tough, no power for the computer. They'll have to do it blind. But what if the prolonged cold damages the limb? Tough, there isn't enough power to spare for anything. And now that Peters has solved the power problem, he's also solved the water problem. Without a big drain on power, there's no big drain on water as a coolant. So one dark, very cold limb is going to support three men on the long fall to earth, which leaves only one glaring problem that Peters hasn't solved. The carbon dioxide problem. Because the way the LEM and command module work is they provide oxygen to the crew. But as the crew breeds in the oxygen, they breed out carbon dioxide. And this carbon dioxide is dealt with by the lithium hydroxide filters or canisters, which remove the carbon dioxide from the cabin. But the LEM filters are not designed to remove the carbon dioxide from three men for the length of time it will take to get them home. Once these filters become saturated, the carbon dioxide levels will build up and poison the crew. So while Peters has solved all these electrical problems, the air in the limb will be growing more and more poisonous. Up in Apollo 13, it's Tuesday afternoon, and Jim Lovell is still worried about their alignment. He looks at Fred Hayes and says, how do you think they're coming along with the alignment business, Fredo? And Hayes replies, can't be too great, but we'd have heard something. And Lovell says, well, our margin of error is vanishing pretty fast. The moon is getting closer and closer. So Lovell says they'll get Houston on the line and have a chat when suddenly the Capcom calls, Aquarius Houston, and Hayes says, go ahead Houston. And then the Capcom, Vance Brand, tells them about a procedure they want the crew to use to check their alignment. And it's a weird one. Rather than using the pinpoint accuracy of the stars to align the platform, they're going to use something a lot less accurate. They're going to use the sun. Now sure, the sun is a star, but it's a star that will fill the telescope many times over. This really isn't a super accurate alignment check, but Brand lays it out for them anyway. They will ask the LEMS computer to align the LEMS so that their alignment telescope is aimed at the northeast quadrant of the sun. If the computer does this and the telescope actually points at the northeast corner of the sun, then they will know to some level of accuracy that their alignment platform for the LEM is pretty good. In other words, because the spacecraft thinks the sun is there, and it turns out that that's actually where the sun is, then the ship knows where it is in space, and it's therefore aligned properly. Hayes looks at Lovell and says, How's that sound to you? Lovell says, Well, it should confirm our alignment. Then he looks at Swaggart, and Swaggart says, Kind of an imprecise method, don't you think? And Lovell answers, very imprecise. 
Then they talk a little bit until Swaggart says, the question is, do you have any better ideas? And Lovell says, none at all. And that pretty much decides it. So now the Capcom comes back on the line and starts to read up the details of the procedure. And when he's done, he tells Lovell that the check will take place in about an hour or so, which is about 3.30pm that afternoon. Lovell looks at his watch and asks, why can't they do it now? And Brand says, okay. So they set to work. Lovell gets in front of the centre of the instrument panel. He'll look after the guidance computer. Swaggart will be at the right-hand window to tell Lovell when the sun will hopefully drift into view. Hayes will look through the alignment telescope to see if the crosshairs line up on the sun. Down in mission control, Jerry Griffin, who's in charge, calls for quiet. This is one of the most important times in the whole flight. If they can establish that their guidance platform is correct, then they can execute the PC plus two burn with confidence and be on the right trajectory home. But if the platform is wrong, then they have an uphill battle ahead of them to get it aligned before they go around the moon. Even worse, if it's wrong, they could actually crash into the moon. So they are ready, and Fred Hayes either deliberately or accidentally knocks the system over into hot mic so the ground can hear all of them talking at once. And Mission Control hears how worried Jim Lovell is. He says... I don't have all the confidence in the world in this. And Hayes replies, we'll get it. And Lovell says, don't be so sure. I still might have screwed up my arithmetic last night. So Lovell enters the information into the computer. The computer processes it and then it waits for Lovell to press proceed. Lovell looks at each of his crewmates in turn and hits proceed. Outside the windows of the LEM, a fine mist of hypergolic gas can be seen from the thrusters and the astronauts feel the ship slowly turning, turning itself to face where it thinks the sun is. Lovell is watching the gauges. We've got roll, he says. Now yaw, roll, pitch, yaw again. Then he asks Houston if they're seeing the movement and Brand says no, not yet. Lovell says Roger, then asks Swaggart, you see anything yet, Jack? Swaggart says nothing. So Lovell asks Hayes, anything over there? And Hayes says, not a thing. And the ship continues to turn. Hayes says, your right side, Commander's FDI. And Lovell says, dead band option. Hayes says, plus 190, plus 08526. And this sort of talk and movement continues for almost eight long minutes. And Swaggart keeps watching for the sun to come into view. And then it does. Just a small flash and he alerts Lovell and before Lovell can respond, a beam of light lands on his instrument panel. Lovell says, call it Jack, what do you see? We've got the sun, says Swaggart. But getting it in the window is one thing. Hayes' telescope needs to line up perfectly. Lovell says, you see anything, Fredo? No, says Hayes. Then suddenly his eyepiece is filling with light. The telescope is definitely turning to face the sun. Hayes says, yes, maybe a third of a diameter. And still the sun brushes across the crosshairs of Hayes' telescope and begins to slide downwards. Hayes says, just about there. Lovell says, we've got it. I think we've got it. 
then his says again, just about there. Then the jets on the lamb shut down, and it comes to a stop. And wherever the ship's telescope's pointing now is where it thinks the upper right-hand corner of the sun is. Lovell says, what have you got? What have you got? And maddeningly, his says nothing. Then he takes his eye away from the eyepiece, and he has a huge grin. He says, upper right-hand corner of the sun. What the astronauts don't see is the whoop that goes up from the controllers in Mission Control. The people who started are the retro Fido and Guido, the ones the sun check matters most to. Then it spreads through the room with clapping and celebration. Now this sort of disorder doesn't happen often and it isn't tolerated very much, but Jerry Griffin lets it go. If this had come out badly, the night ahead of them would have been very different. So now they can go around the moon and fire the engine for the PC plus two burn to send the men home. As Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes and Jack Swaggart look out the window of the Lem at a moon that's growing larger, over the past 24 hours the massive machine that is NASA has well and truly kicked into action. Everyone who's connected with the space program has descended on Houston to help. And it's not just in Houston, but across the country. The staff of North American Aviation who designed and built the command module flood into work. In Bethpage, the people at Grumman do the same. And further afield, people are preparing too. Out in the Pacific, on board the Iwo Jima aircraft carrier, Mel Richmond, recovery officer for NASA, waits patiently for a call to tell him where and when to pull the crew of Apollo 13 from the water. And rumors are circulating that Gene Kranz is going to pull his Tiger team out of hibernation in room 210 and put them back on console for the all-important PC Plus 2 burn. And Bill Peters is hoping that his plan to turn the limb into a flying tin can will work. And Chris Craft and the men in the trench will worry about the limb's trajectory on its long fall to Earth. And even if they pull all of this off, John Arne and Arnie Eldridge still have to figure out how to actually power up the command module and get it ready for re-entry. So NASA has scrambled. And amongst all of this, one man is building a weird-looking device. The most un-NASA piece of equipment to ever appear in mission control. It's built from a flight plan cover and hoses and duct tape. And on Wednesday morning, he'll take this device and arrive at the mission control building. He'll walk through the halls as people stare at what he's carrying. Then he'll take the lift to level 3 and the doors will admit him to mission control. Ed Smiley is about to become one of the most unlikely of heroes. (laughs) 